Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for listening today. I did have half a mind to begin bonjour sure. and continue in French, uh, but I didn't want to confuse anyone. Yeah, or, you know, embarrass ourselves with our very western canadian french pronunciation yeah yeah that is what is going to be the case for at least what i have to share in research yeah i might need your help with some some names at certain points we'll find out but i'm very very excited for tonight's film uh it's in the criterion collection uh we got a real special episode for you guys tonight we are watching eyes without a face and you're going to have to help me. How do you say the French title? Les yeux sans visage. Les yeux sans visage? Yeah. Great. From 1960, directed by Georges Franjou. I'm very excited. Yes. Uh, we haven't really seen a French horror movie in a long time. Yeah. Uh, the last French film I believe we watched for the show was La Diabolique, and it ranked, but... We did have a long discussion about whether it was horror or not. Yes. And it was based on a novel that like the French public called a crime novel. And the French public and critics generally regarded La Diabolique as like a thriller, like something very much in line with like what Hitchcock would make. Um, But yeah, we counted it as horror and included it. So if we're talking about like movies that the French regarded as horror, there hasn't been anything since Lelou de Malvenur back in like the 40s. Mm-hmm. However, the international success of the Hammer Horror films encouraged producer Jules Bourcon to look into the possibility of tapping into that horror market with some domestic French product. At this time, 1960, French cinema had a very high opinion of itself Have we hit French New Wave? Yeah. Generally speaking, French cinema regarded itself as intrinsically artistic. Like, that's just what French cinema was. It's artistic. Sure. Uh, Even though French audiences and critics loved Hammer Horror, but it was like a double standard. Like, the Hammer Horror movies could be what they were and be these very, like, um, grotesque kind of Grand Guignol things that the French public liked because they were foreign. Mm -hmm. Domestic French film had to be artistic. French filmmakers should never debase themselves by creating something of such a low genre. Oh, Um, okay. These were the days of the Cinémathèque Française, the influential magazine Cahiers de Cinéma, and the critics turned directors of the French New Wave. We're basically like right at the heights of the beginnings of all of that so all of those names you know Truffaut and the gang are the big names in French cinema right now okay so to create a homegrown French horror film Bourcon selected the novel Les Yeux Sans Visage by Jean Redon as the basis for the project uh Sarah what can you tell us about the novel um There's not a lot, I can tell you. Um, Both the novel and the author, Jean Redon, they've kind of been overshadowed by this movie. Mm. I know that Jean Redon was a French writer, screenwriter. He also wrote dialogue. I know he was also a journalist and then turned to communications and or being a press agent at the Warner Brothers French office. Interesting. I know he had a son, Michel, who went on to make short films. Cool. But that's about all that I know. Okay. What do you suspect? (laughs) (laughs) So when you, if you go to search Jean Redon, you will find a person named Odilon Redon as like number one in all of the search results. Hmm. This guy may or may not have been Jean Redon's father. I can't find any confirmation or anything, but the timing of like when uh, the artist Odilon Redon lived 
lines up. His like real name is Bertrand Jean, and he had a son mm-hmm. named Jean Vadon, who uh, the timing of the portrait he did of his son aligns when Jean Vadon would likely be an infant. Okay. But um, this is all speculation. I don't know. I don't know when Jean Vadon was born, when he died. That's all I know. <laughs> if, if we have any like academics of French popular culture in our audience, like send us an email and let us know if you have more specifics. Yeah. I don't know if it's just because I'm Googling in English. I tried Googling some stuff in French and yeah, it's just not a lot. But it's likely for Jean Redon that he wrote fiction while he was a journalist. We see that to be fairly typical of a lot of journalists at this time. Mm-hmm. And he likely began doing some dialogue and screenplay work, as well as like adaptations of books into screenplays uh, through the connections he made while working at Warner Brothers' French office. That makes sense. Now, his first credit is on the 1952 film Un Chien qui boit du noir, which is uh, called A Brooding Dog. His first like writer credit was on the 1956 film Fernand Cowboy. <laughs> it's like spelt yeah. in French. But then after that, like it's all like I did dialogue. I did the screenplay adaptation. And that kind of continues to 1960. Um, he has like seven films to his name by this point where he goes to adapt his novel Les Yeux Saint Visage with Georges Fanjou. Mm-hmm. This novel was published in 1959 as part of the Anguis or English collection from a very big publisher called Fleuve Noir or Black River. That's really interesting because Georges Fanjou said that this movie is not so much a horror movie as an anguish movie. Yeah, so anguish, or like anguis, does not directly translate to horror. Mm -hmm. What's further kind of interesting here is um, Black River or Fleuve Noir, they had different like collections, you know, like Penguin House has these, like the classics collection, whatever. Right. Um, or what was that like mystery publisher that had like the, the romance mystery and like the different lines that were different colors or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So some of their other lines would be special police, which was started in 1949 and was crime espionage started in 1950, which was spy novels Anticipation that started in 1951, and that was like science fiction and oh, space interesting. opera. Interesting name for that genre. Yeah, because the translation is anticipation. I think because you're like, oh, Star Wars, like, oh, well, like, excited. You're anticipating tomorrow. You're anticipating the future. Yeah. When these stories will be set. And then Anguisse, um, which was started in 1954. It actually ended in 1974. Mm. It was the least popular Mm. and it included stuff that would be like horror, fantasy, suspense, supernatural. So it's not super popular, but it is well loved by genre fans. Okay. Very interesting. So the novel Le Zio Sans Visage is well known, but... In terms of search results and research, it is very overshadowed by the film. And most people know about the novel because of the film. But the brief synopsis that I could find about the novel is that a French plastic surgeon is kidnapping women and taking parts of their facial skin to graft onto his daughter's face after she was disfigured in a car accident. Now, I don't know how old Jean Redon is. Um, After this film adaptation, his last film credit is writing the screenplay to the 1962 film Conduit au Gauche, which translates to Drive to the Left. The poster looks like a comedy, but the title says Thriller. I don't know, but that's the last credit he has in terms of film. Hmm. I wish I had more for you, Ben. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, the synopsis you gave sounds accurate to the film, although I do know that the film made... A number of changes. Okay. Um, so because the novel was published in 1959 and the film was shot in late 1959, I kind of get the feeling of like Borkan like being like, I need a 
kind of a pulpy horror novel to like base this on and just like picking up something at like the train station and being like this. That sounds accurate. But Borkan selected Georges Franjou as the director. And this choice, it must be said, was kind of a statement of intent. Okay. So Georges Franjou was born in 1912 and he from like childhood was a huge film fan, just a big nerd. Um, and in 1936, he founded a film fan club with Henri Langlois, where members would sit and watch old silent films from their collections and then like debate them and talk about them amongst the membership. And this fan club would evolve into the Cinémathèque Française, uh, one of the largest collections of films, film documents and related objects in the world, which now has like daily screenings of worldwide films uh, at their venue in Paris. That's really cool. Yeah. So like there were other sort of film archive museum type organizations before the Cinémathèque Française, and some of them are still around, um, but they had names like, you know, the New York Museum of Film or something like that. The Cinémathèque Française is why, like, the word Cinémathèque caught on as the name for these kinds of nonprofit organizations. And I have to bring that up because I work for the Calgary Cinémathèque Society. So, um, you know, just a little connection there. <laughs> During the Nazi occupation of France, uh, all films made before 1937 were ordered destroyed. So the Cinémathèque smuggled huge amounts of films and documents out of France to protect them until the end of the war when they were brought back. That's cool. After the war, Franju turned from film fan to filmmaker with a series of nine documentary films influenced by the horrors of World War II. The first, The Blood of Beasts, uh, in 1949, graphically depicted the workings of a slaughterhouse intercut with scenes of children at play. Uh, has he seen any Sergei Eisenstein? Absolutely, of course. Okay. We're talking about like a huge film nerd with a love of silent cinema. Absolutely. Okay, yeah, because this sounds right up that alley. Sure. Passing by the Lorraine in 1950 was commissioned by the French government to celebrate modernization, but Franjou used it to focus on the ugliness and pollution produced by factories. Classic. Hotel of Invalids in 1951 was supposed to celebrate a veterans hospital and the war memorial, but Franjou turned it into a statement against the glorification of military service. I'm seeing a pattern here. Yeah. So Franjou was working on his first ever fiction feature film when Borkan approached him about Eyes Without a Face. Uh, that film is called Head Against the Wall. Uh, it was a drama about a wealthy layabout who is institutionalized after defying his father's wishes. Uh, and the film raises questions about society's treatment of the mentally ill, as well as who gets to decide what is defined as mental illness. Interesting. So Franjou was seen as a serious artist by the French cinema establishment. But Franjou accepted this job gladly because he had grown up on the films of Georges Méliès and was a lifetime fan of um, fantastique films like the works of Cocteau, as well as a lover of pulp fiction. Yeah. However, uh, Borcon cautioned Franjou that they would have to be very careful with the material in order to avoid censorship issues across Europe. Too much blood would offend French censors. Harm towards animals would upset English censors and mad scientist characters would upset German censors and eyes without a face is a novel about a mad scientist who cuts the faces off of women to put them on his horribly disfigured daughter. And he also like tests his techniques out on like dogs. Okay. So tough order. Yeah. Franjou decided to focus on atmosphere and mood. Um, so, you know, he called this an anguisse film. Um, he also referred to it as horror in homeopathic doses. <laughs> uh, okay. So to translate that to the average listener, if you're not familiar with homeopathy, uh, the idea of like 
a single drop of medicine in some water makes that entire bit of water that medicine. Yes. So very like minute drops yes. to um, users of homeopathy would not say this, but I feel like it's the best way to describe it. Um, almost like a sense of contagion of like this one drop contaminates the rest of that material. Hmm. They wouldn't use those kinds of words, obviously, but I feel like that's just the easiest way to describe it. So to ensure that the story would be presented with class, <laughs> um, after Radon and Franju like did the adaptation work, Franju hired the Boileau Narchajac writing team, France's top crime writers, mm -hmm. whose novel She Was No More from 1952 was adapted into Les Diaboliques in 1955, and whose 1954 novel The Living and the Dead was adapted by Hitchcock into Vertigo in 1958. So, like, really highly regarded novelists in France at this time, with a lot of, like, cred amongst the, like, film community. But also, we're seeing that through line of thriller. Mm -hmm. Their key change in crafting the screenplay was to shift the story away from having Dr. Genese as the protagonist of the story to having his daughter Christiane as the protagonist. I like this change. In this way, Genese like still does all the same stuff that he does in the novel, but he comes across as more sympathetic and that avoids the mad scientist implication that would have upset Germany. Mm. The reason I'm like excited about this change is because there have been a lot of movies we've seen over the years where it's like, this could have been much more horror if we had actually focused on the victim or the person being experimented upon or something like that. Hmm. To elevate the material, uh, Franju decided to use a clinical tone to depict the fantastic as matter-of-factly as possible, as the avoidance of sensationalism would presumably remove the, like, trashy feeling that French critics identified with horror. But also, Franju felt that the surreal was much more terrifying when it existed in an otherwise real world rather than, like, the heightened reality of, like, you know, uh, an expressionism style. Very cool. Very interesting. Franju cast Edith Scobe as Christiane uh, after she had appeared in a minor role in Head Against the Wall. Born Edith Helena Vladimirova Skobeltzin in Paris in 1937, she was the daughter of Russian immigrants who had fled the country after the Civil War. Eyes Without a Face was her first major film role, and it led to a long career in theater and film, including working with Franju four more times. She married composer Georges Apergy, and together they founded an avant-garde theater for the poor in 1968, and she passed away in 2019 at age 81. Wow. Dr. Genese is played by actor Pierre Brasseur, who played the head of the institution in Head Against the Wall. Um, but he was also a prolific French film actor. He was born in Paris in 1905, and his acting career stretched from 1924 to his death at age 66 in 1972. Genese's assistant is played by Italian actress Alida Valli, who was born in 1921 as Alida Maria Laura, Baroness Altenberger von Markenstein Frauenberg um, of the nobility of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Oh my goodness. She grew up speaking Slovene, Italian, and German. And as an adult, she could speak Serbo-Croatian, French, and English as well. An advantage as a European actress as she could dub her own voice. Mm -hmm. From age 15, she was educated to be an actress at the most prestigious film schools in Europe and began appearing in Italian films in 1934. She was called the most beautiful woman in the world by Benito Mussolini, and her involvement in the 1942 Italian film adaptation of Ayn Rand's We the Living basically enabled that movie to be made um, because it came under some suspicion. The story is anti-communist. It's set in Soviet Russia in the 20s, and Italy was at war with Soviet Russia, so we were good with anti-communists, but... Basically, you had to be a moron not to notice that all of the anti-communist sentiment in that film could also easily be anti-fascist mm -hmm. sentiment as well. 
but her being one of Mussolini's favorite actresses kind of let the movie slide under the radar. Post-war, Vali was brought to Hollywood by David Selznick and cast in a number of high-profile films, such as Alfred Hitchcock's The Perendine Case with Gregory Peck in 1947, The Miracle of the Bells with Frank Sinatra in 1948, and The Third Man in 1949, uh, where she's the, the female lead. Yeah. However, Vali disliked working under Selznick and bought out her contract to return to Europe in the 1950s, appearing in French and Italian films until her retirement in 2002, including Dario Argento's Suspiria in 1977. And she passed away at age 84 in 2006. So she wouldn't have seen the Suspiria remake. No, no. To shoot the picture, Franju hired cinematographer Eugen Schuften. He is the developer of the in-camera Schuften process, which allowed actors to be inserted into miniature sets and paintings before the development of the traveling mat and blue screen techniques. It's basically a bunch of tricks with mirrors that was described and explained to me in my university film studies courses and at my um, film school courses. And I still, to this day, do not understand how it works. <laughs> um, it just like rolls off my brain. It is very complicated and ingenious. Um, Schuften developed this technique for Fritz Lang, with whom he shot Die Nibelungen in 1924 and Metropolis in 1927. He also shot Abel Gantz's famous Napoleon in 1928, as well as the sword and sandal epic Ulysses in 1954. And after this film, he was the cinematographer on the Paul Newman picture, The Hustler, for which he won the Academy Award for Best Black and White Cinematography. So Franju hired like a legend yeah. to shoot this movie. The film's score is by French composer Maurice Jarret, who had scored Head Against the Wall and wasn't like too big at this point, but would go on to score The Longest Day, Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, Is Paris Burning, Grand Prix, Jesus of Nazareth, Shogun, Top Secret, A Passage to India, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, Dead Poets Society, Ghost, Jacob's Ladder, and many, many more. Fascinating. Christiane's gowns in the film were created by Hubert de Vinci, and her mask was created out of like a thin plastic material that was glued to her face around the eyes and mouth. Scobe would later object to Eyes Without a Face being called horror. Uh, she preferred to call it um, fantastique, like a fantasy film in the tradition of Cocteau. Eyes Without a Face premiered in Paris on March 2nd, 1960, and though it had passed the European censors, the film caused something of a furor upon release. Oh, no. Uh, newspapers reported audience members dropping like flies during screenings. French critics could not believe that Franju would debase himself to make a <laughs> horror movie. So hold on. Quick pause. When you say audiences were dropping like flies, do they mean that like they were leaving or they were fainting? Fainting. Okay. The film got extremely hostile reviews in France um, or positive reviews that would bend over backward to call it anything but horror just trying to be like no this is uh this or that or the other thing like the cahier du cinema review which dubbed it film noir (laughs) okay does this sound familiar yes absolutely yeah when asked why he would make a horror movie franju explained that the film was his effort to elevate horror to a genre worthy of serious critical consideration The film was savaged by critics in England. Uh, The only reviewer in England to give the film a positive notice was fired. (laughs) Wow. Famously, audience members fainted during the surgery scene uh, at the Edinburgh Film Festival. Seven people fainted during the scene. The movie was released in the U.S. on March 28th, 1962 on a double feature with The Manster. (laughs) Sure. And it was uh, re- that would have just been coming out of Japan. That's right. And it was retitled The Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus. It was dubbed in English and it had some of the gore edited out uh, to suit U.S. censors. But it also had scenes that show Dr. Genesee as more sympathetic edited out as well. Hmm. Okay. Because you kind of, I guess, in the U.S. need those more clear, good, evil 
dividing lines. Sure. Variety absolutely dumped on the horror chamber of Dr. Faustus, calling it stilted, plodding, old-fashioned, and inept. So, you know, some years pass. Yeah. And in 1986, the film was re-released by the Cinémathèque Française in celebration of their 50th anniversary. Basically, because Franju was one of the founders, they did like a series of his films, including Eyes Without a Face. And that generated a kind of critical rediscovery and reappraisal, starting with Cahiers de Cinema, who called it a film marvel. It was finally released uncut in the U.S. in 2003, where it garnered much praise, with critics calling it poetic, haunting, and beautiful. Fascinating. Eyes Without a Face was a huge influence on European filmmakers after its release, um, such as horror director uh, Jesus Franco, uh, who based two films on it as basically like really uh, obvious kind of semi-remakes, one in 1962 and one in 1988. Imagery from films as diverse as Halloween, Face Off, and The Skin I Live In is derived from Eyes Without a Face, and Guillermo del Toro has cited it as one of his favorite movies. Eyes Without a Face is available on home video as part of the Criterion Collection. You can stream it on the Criterion channel, and you can rent it on iTunes. I am so excited. I'm so glad. (laughs) Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along. Um, Criterion movies are often in local libraries, uh, so check there if you can't find a version to stream um, and don't want to rent from YouTube. But uh, yeah, um, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Les Yeux Sans Visage, also known as Eyes Without a Face, from 1960, directed by Georges Franjou. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. You are joining us after we've watched Eyes Without a Face, Les Yeux Sans Visage from 1960, directed by Georges Franjou. Sarah, what did you think of the movie? Uh, I liked it. I had a heck of a time writing down my thoughts for it, though. Oh, interesting. I don't really know why. Interesting. Yeah, um... This movie feels like such a, like, abrupt tone and style shift. Yes. It's, uh, one thing that is interesting is we have seen these beats mm-hmm. so many times. Right. Yet it, uh, feels different. Yeah. Plot-wise, this isn't really breaking any kind of new ground. But no. in terms of, like, tone, it's very different, um... I think this is definitely horror. Yeah. Structurally speaking, it's basically gothic horror. Yeah. Um, But that matter-of-fact presentation that I talked about in the intro renders it, like, a bit flat sometimes compared to what we're used to Yeah. um, in the horror scene these days. The very, like, clinical approach to the gore, but also the fact that it was like, but this is art. Yes, you really can... put me at like arm's length. It was like, oh, you got to stand over there behind this like red ribbon and admire me from afar kind of art rather than like, I don't know. I would never see Roger Corman movies yeah. treated in this way. Yeah, you can really sense the reticence to really go for broke on the horror. Um, and it definitely feels like it's coming from that need to be seen as artistic but ultimately, I think the movie really delivers the goods where it needs to. Um, I feel like we're getting too far into discussion territory. Why don't I tell people what happens mm-hmm. and why these eyes have lost their face? <laughs> and then we can dive in. For sure. When the film opens, it's nighttime and we see a woman dragging and dropping a woman's body into the river. The body is recovered by police and they call in a Dr. Genesee to identify 
this uh, body and he confirms that it is his daughter, Christiane. They were able to kind of go like, hey, we think it's your daughter because a few months prior, Christiane and Dr. Genesee had been in a car accident and her face was terribly, terribly scarred. So she's kind of easy to identify as a result. It turns out Dr. Genesee lied. We find this out after Christian's funeral, and he and that woman from the beginning, whose name turns out to be Louise, they return back to his house, and his daughter Christiane is alive, but hidden up in the tallest tower. Mm-hmm. <laughs> turns out this body was of a young woman who he and Louise kidnapped to basically take her face whole and graft it onto Christiane's face. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they were going to take her face off Off. um (laughs) it it didn't take so christian is still without a face um she wears this like plasticky looking mask uh that just has eye holes for the majority of the movie now louise is dr genese's assistant and she's very loyal because uh she had her own facial surgery that he completed And while she's driving around town looking for a new potential subject, she finds one named Edna. They kidnap her and they do the facial surgery, facial transplant onto Christiane. And I want to make sure that it's clear that Christiane is aware that this is what they're doing. Mm -hmm. She is treated with like gloves and um, very sheltered, but she knows what they are doing and they don't like hide it from her. And her interpretation of this grafting of skin and everything is, well, it was her father's fault that she was in the car accident in the first place because he was driving a little erratic. Uh, He had some road rage issues. But um, also, she kind of sees herself as just one of his experiments. He experiments on dogs, and she kind of believes that she is just considered yet another experiment subject. So this facial graft appears to be a success, um, but unfortunately necrosis sets in after a few weeks, so she has to go back to the mask. Edna doesn't die from the surgery, uh, so she's like wrapped up, and she escapes from her cell, is running around the house, and eventually um, she runs out of a window uh, at the top floor and falls to her death. With this setback of having to go back to her mask, Like, Christiane was ready to start a new life and, you know, get back to her fiancé, Jacques, who is one of the doctors who works at Dr. Genesee's clinic that is just down the road from their house. She calls him every so often just to hear his voice because he can't know that she's still alive. But this time that she calls after this failed graft, um, she ends up saying his name and he goes, well, that's weird she's supposed to be dead and he ends up going to the police and this is how he learns of some of these kidnappings and that um tied to these kidnappings is this description of a woman who wears this thick pearl choker which he kind of recognizes as potentially being louise so he's like you know i think there might be something connected here and the police are like well okay, we just picked up this woman named Paulette for shoplifting. Uh, She kind of fits the description of the people who keep getting kidnapped. So they have her pose as a patient at Dr. Genesee's clinic to kind of make contact with Dr. Genesee. He sees her. He checks her out for, you know, what she is apparently admitted for. And he's like, there's nothing wrong with this woman. Release her and send her back to Paris. She's released. But she gets picked up by Louise as soon as she leaves. Now, the police know that Paulette was released from hospital, um, but know that she didn't make it back to Paris. So they come to the clinic to investigate. Meanwhile, we see Paulette is strapped down for surgery. And just as Dr. Genesee is about to operate and do the facial graft again, uh, he's pulled away because the police have arrived at the clinic to ask him some questions. While she's left alone with Paulette, Christiane releases her. Louise interrupts this and tries to figure out, like, what are you doing? And 
Christiane stabs her in the throat with a scalpel. Paulette runs out. Uh, Christiane then releases all of the dogs, all of the doves that are locked up in the basement here. And it's around this time that Dr. Genese is coming back from being questioned by police. The police were like, hey, do you know this chick Paulette? Oh yeah, I treated her and released her. Once they leave that door, they're not my responsibility. And they're like, huh, okay, you're free to go. And they consider it like a dead end. Dr. Genese is walking back from the clinic and then he gets mauled by his dogs. And Christiane walks into the forest holding a dove and just walks off. That's the end. Mm -hmm. The thing with arty movies is that sometimes there are details that are like, while watching them, you feel like it's particularly significant. And I might not have covered that in the synopsis. Is there anything that you want to make sure gets mentioned, Ben? Not that I'm remembering off the top of my head, um, but I'm sure we can dig in to a lot of stuff as we discuss the movie. What was your feeling about the tone of this movie and like, how much or how little it ends up feeling like a real horror movie. It has a really good gothic vibe. Like they really hit the nail on the head with like atmosphere without leaning too far into what they would consider goofy theatrics of like fog on the moors and howling dogs and a full moon. Um, I love that stuff. You know, I'm a slut for aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel like this movie, it manages to get the mood without doing the aesthetic. Right away, the movie puts a lot of emphasis on mirrors, even before they kind of point to mirrors and be like, I've taken all the mirrors out of your way, Christiane, Mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting. At first, I thought it was just people showing off because mirrors are hard with cameras. But no, it's like part of the theme of the movie. And yeah, I picked up the gothic vibe right away because of the very labyrinthine house Yeah, that has like, it feels like the tallest tower and then the deepest dungeons. Mm-hmm. Um, they do dabble a little bit with some sort of expressionist visuals when it comes to the dog jail. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's in the depths of the dungeon. I, I think they felt like they could get away with that. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting because I think if you are used to like the hammer horror aesthetic, this is so very toned down. And I get what the director was going for in terms of like this idea that the surreal seems, you know, more frightening when you contrast it with like a very matter of fact presentation, right? But it creates this interesting situation where I think if you were used to dramas and you were used to sort of cinema verite and you were used to French New Wave and you were used to that kind of thing and that's what you considered serious cinema and you saw this, it would be very like shocking and like, oh, Mm. but when you're watching nothing but horror movies if you're just if you're either us or like at the time like some sort of like horror junkie who like only goes to horror movies and stuff this actually ends up feeling kind of flat yeah that being said uh the surgery scene the face grafting scene where they literally cut the face off the one woman and put it on well not literally in within the story of the film (laughs) they cut the face off of one woman and put it on the other uh so that's the scene where everyone fainted when this first was shown i think they did a very good job yes i think it holds up really well today i think if you're looking for it you can tell how it was done but if you weren't expecting to see something like this in the movie i think it would seem very real yeah like you have to be looking for oh, where do they suddenly like swap to a, a double where now there's like a face on top of the actress that they're now pulling off or something like you have to be looking. Yeah. Um, if you're just an average moviegoer, you might not catch some of those things because they're very well hidden. And to that point, the effects of like pulling the face off were good, um, but also showing her muscles underneath. Mm-hmm. And to that end as well, the scars on Christiane's face 
um, which I wanted a little bit more of. Yes. Um, but I understand again why we didn't get it. We basically get one shot of it, and it's it's a little out of focus. Yeah, because it's supposed to be really horrific, right? Mm-hmm, so like, mm-hmm. well, we can't show all of it, and it's also like early in the movie. So I thought then because it was out of focus, we're going to get a little bit more yeah, later, but, we, we, but don't. we don't. Um, I also really like the effect of just when they're cutting into Edna's face, like basically what's going on here is like, they've got a, like, I think what's going on here is they've got like an ink pen, like a reservoir pen that looks like a scalpel. Cause they're, they're just kind of drawing like it's in black and white. Right. So they're just like drawing like ink onto her face that's the blood yeah and it does get goopy so yeah. it has to be a fountain pen yeah but it looks really good yeah. as an effect her poor face would have been dyed oh yeah <laughs> uh yeah i i really did appreciate like the work they were doing and i did like that it was this clinical approach but it it did feel like something was missing mm. What did you think of the music? There's basically two main musical themes going on here. There's this kind of um fairy tale element to Christians and circus ride with Louise. Yes. This kind of like um merry-go-round funhouse mirrors music when Louise is um tracking down victims to the point where it kind of turns into this like third man-esque leitmotif of you know Louise is back on the prowl again because we hear the music again kind of thing. I love the use of leitmotifs mm. in any media. Mm. I heckin' love it. I, I get why they chose Circus for Louise and this fairy tale for Christiane. They were too disjointed from each other. Mm. Um, one thing that's neat that I credit doesn't go to me. I learned this from TikTok. Um, <laughs> someone looked at the way that the uh, Shire theme is constructed in Lord of the Rings sure, and how the Isengard theme is the opposite. Right. Structurally and in tone and, and everything. It's like literally the reverse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love when like they both are very identifiable. They both convey the mood that they were supposed to. And yet there's something linking them. Mm-hmm. And for Louise and Christiane, I didn't feel like there was anything linking their leitmotif. So it felt very disjointed. Mm-hmm. I wish the film had dug into Louise's character a bit more, um, her devotion to the doctor, but also her conflicted feelings about what they're doing. She has a lot of like obvious self-hatred of her own role in this but the movie never really digs into her very deeply and i wish we had gotten a bit more yeah so she has christiane doesn't treat her this way but she louise gives off this maternal role yes to christiane and so like a few months before or maybe like a few years before their car accident they established that christiane's mother died Mm -hmm. and during the opening lecture uh, Dr. Janice says that, um, you know, this kind of transplant uh, of like tissue in this way doesn't seem to really work uh, unless they happen to be like identical twins or something like that. And so I thought there was going to be something about like, I don't know, and, and Louise having her own surgery. Like I right. wanted, I thought there was going to be something about like she's secretly her mother or something like that to kind mm. of justify that. That would also bring in a little bit more of that gothic drama part of it, but they didn't go there. Yeah, I just thought that, like, she was clearly a very interesting character and clearly had, like, a lot of conflicted feelings about everything, but ultimately, like, didn't get to really express the depths of that. I think they wanted Louise's perspective to be stuck in that feeling of like I'm on this roller coaster ride and I can't get off and there are parts of it that are like I enjoy and parts that I really hate and I want to get off and mm-hmm. that's part of what the music is bringing forward and I think that um Christiane's discovery of her father's like secret lab area could have had a stronger horror quality to it it's well done and it has that like you know descent into the dungeons kind of feel 
but I would have liked to have seen more of her horror and rejection of what her father is doing uh, before releasing Paulette at the end. Instead, the scenes where Christiane is objecting to what her father's doing seem to mostly be concerned with the fact that Christiane is convinced it won't work. Like, I'm just an experiment. He doesn't care if it works. It's not going to work. Whereas Louise is like, no, I have confidence in him. Like, trust me, it's going to work. And there isn't really a lot from how Christiane feels about the fact that, like, her father is, like, killing women just to get Christiane her face back, which, like, on a, on a um, you know, if we're talking about, like, oh, I'm doing things for you, I'm doing it for the greater good, whatever, like, if we're talking about, like, a moral scale is, like, pretty poorly weighted like why do they why does christiane have a right to a face more than these women slash you know right to a life right but then at the end like she releases paulette and so i i would have liked to have seen like more of a recognition from christiane that like what her father's doing isn't just doomed to fail that it's like wrong and have that kind of lead to her releasing paulette um instead all of the characters are kind of kept at that arm's length that you were talking about at the start. And I don't know, maybe it's because I've been so conditioned to expect melodrama in my horror, you know, people crying and screaming and yelling that it just felt oddly absent in this picture, even though I knew going in that that absence was purposeful. Yeah, I also found it frustrating that we didn't get into Christiane's head. Um, The closest we get is that she shows she is suicidal, Mm -hmm. um, that she keeps asking Louise for her to, like, let her die, like, Mm -hmm. assisted euthanasia. And that's when we also hear that she thinks of herself as just another experiment for her dad. And I wanted a little bit more of, like, what her arc is supposed to be. Part of it is I think she has to be wearing this mask Mm -hmm. and the point of this mask is that you can't see her face. So I understand why we don't get to see her emotions, but I still wish we could have gotten something. He wants to like Franju that is wants to keep Christiane like kind of this ethereal figure. I I liked that she gets treated that way Mm -hmm. and is like childish like treated like a child um you see it in the way people interact with her but even down to her um gown right uh, she just she's she looks like a doll yes so the entire movie especially when you think about the way she dresses compared to the women her age that are being kidnapped yes who are dressed in like the the contemporary style Mm -hmm. of the day like she feels very much like she's a creepy doll a creepy doll, um, a creepy child who has been locked up in the attic for years. Yeah. And, and even to the point of like her being a doll, like it makes sense. We can't access like her, her thought process and stuff. So without that, my interpretation of her arc is more like I'm going to take agency into my own hands because mm-hmm. she, she doesn't like go to kill. She's just like, I'm going to get myself free. And you will be free too, dogs. Mm-hmm. And then I'm just going to walk into the forest. Mm-hmm. And earlier when Dr. Genesee finds a dog in the forest, he's like, oh, people just like abandon these dogs when like they uh, can't care for them anymore. And just like takes this dog and even when this dog clearly doesn't want to go. And that kind of juxtaposition being clear about like Dr. Genesee's con- a need for control over anything he comes across mm-hmm. and the desire for just even a, a little bit of freedom on Christiane's part. That's about as far as you get to like, there's no like actual creature wreaking revenge on their no. maker. No, no, no. That's no. as close as we get. It's very subdued. It's the same beat in yes. the story, but it's very subdued, which is true of like a lot of things in this movie. Right. Yes. And, you know, it helps give Christiane that kind of like nightmare ghost quality that she has. But again, it keeps us at arm's length from her as a person, right? Um, We can understand her longing for Jacques and all these other things, but you do kind of watch this movie, at least I did, 
wondering if this is really horror or just like a drama with horror elements, you can feel that desire to break away from sensationalism and luridness in a search for respectability. But it makes me wonder if maybe too much was lost in that effort that is part of the things we like about horror movies, right? Absolutely. Um, I wanted to make a note that the fact the police are ineffectual Mm. and not just like ineffectual because they're bumbling idiots. They are like following quote unquote procedure. Mm -hmm. They are like, Oh yeah, we have a great idea of like using this chick we picked up and coming up with like a plan. And so they clearly have agency. They're just bad at their job Mm. and they don't even realize it. For me, the fact that there's like this police element of the story and we don't follow it. We don't care about it. Even like Jacques, role in the Mm -hmm. movie like we don't care about it we don't follow it to me that is like showing that this is not noir right despite what uh that magazine cahier de cinema said um to me this is horror i think it is subdued possibly to its detriment because the fact that you said that this was released as a double feature with the manster right my mind kept thinking about the manster and how that movie doesn't hold anything back at all. Right. Like a dude gets fucking run over. Like the juxtaposition there, people must have had whiplash. Sure. So for me, I I was a little bit frustrated that the entire cops subplot is unnecessary. It feels vestigial. Like, oh, we need to have the Sirate show up to do an investigation or whatever, because that's what you have in movies like this. But it doesn't really go anywhere. Um, It feels like filler. And ultimately, to me, what makes it mostly unsatisfying is that it means that like Jacques and Christiane's plot lines never meet. Like the thing that sets off Jacques' plot line is that Christiane keeps calling him because she wants that connection back in her life, which, by the way, Sidebar, the whole reason the doctor is doing all this is so that like he can give his daughter her beautiful face again. And presumably the whole reason you'd want to do that is so that she can, you know, like live her life. But then you fake her death so that no one will come looking for her after she went missing from the clinic, which means that you can't ever give her her normal life back. Like even if you succeed on the face thing, she has to like move to Cuba and say that her name is like Elizabeth and that, you know, (laughs) her parents died on Krypton. Like, so he does say like Dr. Genesee does say that, you know, I'll explain it to Jacques. So mm -hmm. Jacques can come back into your life and like, you're absolutely right. But Dr. Genesee isn't like making sane decisions here. No, no. The idea of, this chick posing as his dead daughter Mm -hmm. was clearly like, Oh shit, she died. What do we do with the body? I know we'll cover it up this way. And then no one will keep asking about how Christiane is doing. Yeah. Like he, as much as he is like, I control things and I have control over information to not tell this mother and her son that he's dying or anything like that, or I have complete control over this process and I will succeed because I have the ultimate control over science. Uh, He absolutely does not. And that's Mm -hmm. his tragedy. I disagree about how you felt about the police. I, it didn't feel vestigial to me because you started off with saying how this movie was supposed to be like horror, but also like horror tinged with anguish Mm. and of course an audience member of this time is going to be like oh the police no police don't go and feeling like no they they could have done something sure sure i it's supposed to just add to the horror i get that yeah it just was dramatically frustrating to me that jacques and christian like don't end up meeting particularly because the movie doesn't really play it for tragedy yeah. Like, it's just like Jacques just kind of goes off into the night. And then like 20 minutes later, Christiane just goes off into the night. And the movie doesn't really like give you that feeling of like, oh, they could have been together. But, you know, events didn't turn out that way. Um, Jacques also just like really boring as a character. Um, but also, you know, what the cops subplot gives us is it provides Paulette to be the third victim. But we don't really need them to do that. Like they could have just... Like, Genesee and Louisa could have just found another victim the same way they've always been doing it. 
And maybe that would have given more room for more exploration of Luis and Christiane as characters if we weren't also following this police subplot that doesn't go anywhere. That said, with the tone of the movie, I think the restrained performances given by Brasur and Vali and Scobe are quite effective Mm -hmm. and that the movie does possess very powerful imagery. Yeah, clearly, because it, you know, made so many ripples beyond its own opening, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it is cool to see, you know, a movie for the show being made by someone who, like, knows how to make a movie. (laughs) Like, like, you know, where you can tell, like, oh, these these shots are being chosen. There's like, uh, a purpose behind each and every shot that they do. Yeah. We're, we're doing like composition and framing and, yeah. you know, we're thinking about symbolism <laughs> and thematics. I think that's why the mirrors I, I noticed right away. And it was right. just like, yeah, like it, cause I remember when we first saw cat and the canary with Paul Lenny mm. and it was just like, the castle and then that like transposed into like the the chairs around the table like it was just like everything was done so purposefully and as much as like the b movie schlock has fun moments it definitely is losing that feeling of like ah we are artists (laughs) sure yeah absolutely and you know here we've got symbolism like the doves in the cage and stuff that we can talk about and chew on right um <laughs> when we first enter christian's room there is a bird cage with a bunch of doves in it hmm. you can put two and two together yeah she lets them all go at the end yeah um so yeah i really liked the uh acting mm-hmm. for the film i think that you know like i said within that restrained tone it works quite well um, but for me, the thing that really sealed this movie and made me go, okay, yeah, no, 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 this is some good shit, is the ending with the dogs being released and then us watching like the dogs devour Genesee. Oh, they just wreck his shit. And we get a good shot of his mauled face. Yes. That made you go, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because his eye is like hanging out. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's what I really liked. I really like that's when it felt like, okay, yeah, this is a horror movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have almost liked to have gotten a bit more of, you know, Christian avenging angel uh, at the end. Right. But yeah, I think the ending is really great. And that kind of for me sealed the movie up as being, you know, a really good classic horror film. Yeah, I, I like this movie. I just had a challenging time with the fact that it's keeping me at arm's length. I wanted a little bit more. But I completely agree. It's horror. It's good. Let's rank it. For sure. So, Ben, I had a really hard time ranking this. Mm. I need us to start with a single question. Okay. Is this higher or lower than the Manster at number 99? Oh, higher. So, for those who are like the Manster, uh, we covered <laughs> that in episode 268. Uh, As I said earlier, it was released on a double feature with Eyes Without a Face. And when I was thinking about this movie and thinking about how do I actually feel about Eyes Without a Face, I kept coming up against The Manster and comparing. And obviously, Eyes Without a Face is made much better, more than likely had a much better budget. Um, But the energy that The Manster had was really lacking from eyes without a face. So I was like, I don't know how to move forward from here. I think this comes down to like, what are you looking for from your horror movie? Uh, eyes without a face has much more of that laid back, quiet, atmospheric, nightmarish quality that we saw in films like um, Fall of the House of Usher from 1928, Vampire from 1932, that kind of very like, you know, European art house movie horror <laughs> uh, feeling. Yeah. Whereas The Manster is very like schlock, drive-in movie feel, right? It's two very different energies. And I think that's a matter of taste, not quality. Absolutely. Um, so for those curious about The Fall of the House of Usher, that was many, many episodes ago. Yeah. Um, but that currently is ranked at number 120. Mm-hmm. 
while Vampire is much higher at 52, mm-hmm. which I would agree uh, about the similar vibes. Um, I don't... Okay, I'm going to say this, and then you can tell me where you are thinking. Sure. But thinking about this compared to Vampire, I think Vampire is better. Oh, interesting, interesting, interesting. Uh, is it interesting? <laughs> usually I'm the one arguing that Vampire is better than things. Ah. Uh, so that's that's why I, that's interesting to me. Um, so when I was looking at this, uh, you know, I was trying to think about how high quality this is, the fact that it, you know, it's treating horror seriously, the art horror thing, the influence it's had in years since. I was really amused looking at this movie and doing the the um, research for this movie and seeing how similar the discourse around this movie when it came out is to like the current like elevated horror yeah. discourse of like, oh, you know, uh, an A24 horror movie is like worthy of critical discourse, but like a Platinum Dunes horror movie is, you know, that's just cheap schlock and we're not going to regard it as like a real movie. And yeah, it was just sort of interesting to see that projected back into the past um, and be thinking about that again. So I felt like this movie should go fairly high to recognize, you know, the way that it's elevating horror and the way that it's trying to treat it seriously and all of those other things, but that it couldn't be like top 10 or even top 20 for me because of the way that it holds things at arm's length, which you can interpret as, you know, I want to treat this genre seriously, but can also kind of come across as like, I'm embarrassed of this genre that I'm working in. Right. And I want to, I want to do it without all the fun parts of the (laughs) genre. And it's like, well, no, like the fun parts are the fun parts. Right. So, um, ultimately I was looking at the Dodeschern, uh, Lake of the dead. Um, the, I believe Norwegian horror movie, uh, from 1958 that we looked at, which also has a very, like, I'm serious and literary and you should, take me seriously kind of vibe to it. Um, and I, I think that eyes without a face is better. Um, what number is that? 32. I liked eyes without a face more than Lake of the dead. If only because for one thing, eyes without a face did not make its exploration of like the horror genre into the text of the film for one thing. But I love that shit. And then the <laughs> other thing I liked about Eyes Without a Face is, you know, because of the grafting scene and the the mauling scene, like it really does present some horrific imagery. So that's where I was looking. Like I was looking below Invasion of the Body Snatchers above Lake of the Dead at number 32. But this seems too high for you. This feels way too high for me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you... Mm. Which do you think was visually more impactful, Eyes Without a Face or Cabinet of Caligari? Oh, Cabinet of Caligari, like no question. Yeah, so I feel like we can't go above there. Mm. But like just below Vampire is Valkoinen Pura, White Mm. Reindeer, which also is like, you know, very... I feel like you could interpret it as being standoffish because it's fairly silent, but it's very effective. Yes. And it manages to convey everyone's arc while still having that barrier. I don't feel like we should go above White Reindeer. It's at 55. Looking down below, though, and we're hitting a lot of those like schlocky movies that uh, I feel like because it's such a different tone, mm. Eyes Without a Face feels challenging to rank in here. Sure. So what do you think about below White Reindeer, but above the Screaming Skull? Yeah, I, I'd go for that. Okay, sweet. All right. Well, then entering the list at the new number 56 is Les Yeux Sans Visage from 1960, directed by Georges Franjou. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. 
Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. It would help us out a lot if you give the show a rating or a review on the podcasting app that you listen to it on. And it'll also help us out a lot if you just tell a friend about the show. Let people know that we are headed into the 1960s, a whole new, brave new world of faces getting cut off and... Uh, dead you know, mothers. Dead mothers. And yeah, uh, a whole new world of horror uh, coming up that's going to be really interesting and entertaining to look at in the episodes to come. And if you really enjoy what we're doing, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at higher levels get access to special bonus content. And this month we are having the final horror adjacent bonus episode poll for our 24th horror adjacent bonus episode. Two years of doing these special episodes decided on by our patrons. So if you haven't gotten a chance to vote in one of those polls, June's poll is the biggest yet with 15 movies in contention for this final horror adjacent bonus episode. Get on the Patreon at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. Join up and vote uh, to find out what's going to be our uh, 24th bonus episode. What's in the lead, Sarah? Um, very thematically uh, appropriate. It is Rebecca from 1940. Gotcha. Okay. How many, <laughs> how many votes does Rebecca have? 23%. Ah, Okay. I don't know how many that is. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, if you want to swing the vote towards one of your favorites, head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week we're heading down to Mexico Ooh. for La Casa del Terror. The Castle of Terror. The Terror Castle. Right. Uh, starring, it's a werewolf movie. Ooh. Stars Lon Chaney Jr. No! <laughs> he had probably some bills to pay and you know needed to go down to mexico where the drink is cheap um to make a movie that he probably wasn't really up to making uh doing stuff like that he was doing 20 years ago like having to be a a Mm. werewolf so it's gonna be a little sad it might be a little sad okay well we will be sad together next week creatures of the night bye bye bye